Good morning. Our scripture for today comes from Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. And it says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Amen. Amen. Good morning, guys. It seems like we were just here, like 48 hours ago or less than 48 hours ago. It is good to gather for worship as often as we can. And as I was thinking about that over the course of the last 24 hours or so, just it's not lost on me that it's because of your generous and faithful support that we're able to rent this space week in and week out, now multiple times a week for Christmas celebration to host worship services so we can worship as a church family and we can invite people. And we had an incredible Christmas Eve service. I'm so thankful for everyone that... Uh, made that possible. I'm thankful for those of you who were able to join us as we celebrated the birth of Christ. I hope you had a Merry Christmas. I know we did as a family. We turned it into a full day this year. I mean, it took from sun up to well after sundown to celebrate Christmas. I was thinking about it, though, yesterday as I was loading the gifts, mainly Brighton's gifts, a car full of gifts into a car at my parents' house. I was full from multiple celebratory meals. It, it dawned on me that as much energy and effort and anticipation that goes into Christmas in an instant, it seems like it's all over. You ever get that feeling? Like I remember as a kid, it was the worst feeling in the world. You had that countdown to Christmas, 25 days to Christmas, and when it reset to 364, 365 more days, it's like the worst feeling in the world because so much energy and anticipation went into the celebration of Christmas. But even as an adult, I'm realizing like we put all this energy and excitement into Christmas, and as soon as it's over, it just kind of seems like the energy leaves. And I wonder if as, if as we evaluate our life, if kind of the spiritual rhythm of our life is uh, resembles that. Like we put all this energy and excitement into celebrating Christmas, the birth of Jesus, God with us. But after Christmas, you know, some of the energy begins to evaporate. I mean, Christmas Eve is a full house, and you look around, two days later, there's less people. It's, there's less energy and less excitement at times after Christmas. But what I want to see over the course of the next few minutes is that the message that we spent this Christmas season celebrating, the message that God is with us, uh, continues throughout the life of Jesus and carries us into eternity. So if you have your Bible with you, we're going to flip a few different places. Go ahead and grab that. Start with me in Matthew chapter 1. It's going to be a familiar text. It's, it's the, the foundational text for our study this Christmas. Matthew chapter 21, one more time, it says this in verse uh, 21. It says, she will bear a son, speaking of Mary, and, she, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save the people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, they shall call his name Jesus. Emmanuel, which means God with us. That's the, the theme that we've spent the last six weeks studying, that God with us, that the reality of Christmas is the reality that Christ came to save and sustain us. Matthew begins his gospel. There's a genealogy, and very quickly, he, he just kind of sets the stage for where he's going in his text to say, what we're here to celebrate, what we're here to, to realize is that Jesus is the realization of the promise that God would dwell with his people. That's the beginning of Matthew's gospel. 
Now, if you were to flip 28 chapters to the right, Matthew chapter 28, and see the very last words in Matthew's gospel, it says this. It says, now the 11 disciples, Matthew 28, verse 16, the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. We're going to come back to that. And Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. And then what does he say? The very last words in Matthew's gospel, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Matthew begins and ends his gospel with the reality of the promise that Jesus is in fact God with us. The gospel starts, the gospel of Matthew starts with the presence of God with us to save us. His name will be Jesus, which he will save the people from their sins. And it ends with the presence of God with us to send us. And so over the course of the next few minutes, I just want to unpack these few verses, Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 to 20, to see that the story of God with us isn't just reserved for the Christmas story, but it's the story that saves, sustains, and sends us to live life with Jesus. Now, the context for the end of Matthew, all of, all of Jesus' ministry has unfolded since the birth of, you know, the story of the birth in Matthew chapter 1. He grew up, which we know very little about, and he started his ministry around age 30 and taught people and preached the kingdom of God was near, performed miracles, and gathered 12 disciples and taught them and poured into them and invested in them so that they would learn the way that Jesus had called them to lead life. And here Jesus is nailed to a cross and at the end of Matthew chapter 27, he's thrown in his body is thrown, lifeless body thrown into a tomb where he's buried. Three days later he's raised from the dead. What Matthew doesn't tell us in his gospel story, what the other gospel stories tell us, is that Jesus spent about 40 days appearing off and on to these disciples, spending time with them, encouraging them, teaching them, praying with them. And here, at the end of Matthew chapter 28, Jesus is about to ascend back to the Father's right hand. So we've had the, the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus, and we're approaching the ascension of Jesus back to the Father's right hand. And it says this, it says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. And so this is a divine appointment. This is where Jesus has told them to go. He spent time with them off and on over a period of 40 days, and he's given them an address. He says, I want you to go to the mountain in Galilee, and I will appear to you there. And it's, you can imagine, if you have this divine appointment with Jesus, it's not like a doctor's appointment that you might blow off if you're uncomfortable or busy. You show up where Jesus says he's going to show up. And so the disciples, the 11, because Judas has taken himself out of the game at this point, the 11 go to the mountain, and Jesus, in fact, appears to them. It says, when they saw Jesus, they worshiped him. And, and they're just overwhelmed with the presence of Jesus. They've saw him nailed to a cross. They've seen him raised from the dead. And so every time Jesus appears, it's just this, this reverence, this awe and respect for the risen Savior. They worshiped him. But then it goes on and it says, but some doubted. And that isn't really the point of the sermon, but that, that was convicting to me. Because here you see the 11 disciples, the friends of Jesus, who had followed him closer than any anyone else had followed him. When everyone else bailed, they were around. Finally, they bailed, but they've come back, and they see Jesus raised from the dead, and they worship, but they also doubt. And how can you have both at the same time? Like, how can you have worship and doubt? The Greek word there for doubt is translated either doubt or hesitation. 
And it's like this, it's like this picture of these disciples, these 11 guys who were there in the presence of Jesus, and they're overwhelmed with the work of God to raise Jesus from the dead, and they worship him for who he is, but they're still trying to wrap their finite minds around the reality of an infinite resurrected God. And so they're, they're worshiping him, they're celebrating him, they're singing songs of praise, spending time with Jesus, but at the same time, in the back of their mind is this hesitation. Like, what does this really mean? And here's where I find myself at times thinking that I have to have all of this figured out before I can worship. Like, I have to know how the story ends. Like, I have to know the part that God has called me to play every step of the way. And until I have that figure out, I just kind of want to step back and wait when withhold worship. But what we see with the disciples is they worship while they're working it out. And all throughout the New Testament, the church is gathering, and they're all at various stages of faith, trying to figure out the reality of Jesus. Some are all in because some saw him raised from the dead. Others are hearing the story second and third hand, and they're, they're like trying to figure out all the historical accounts and put the pieces together. But nonetheless, the church, is, church gathers to worship. In fact, the writer of Hebrews would say to the church scattered around the first century and the church in the 21st century, in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23, he would say, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promises faithful. So he's, this is in context of the sacrifice of Christ. He's saying like, if you believe, if you've heard and you believe in the truth of the sacrifice of Jesus and the resurrection, like hold fast to that. Hold it tightly. Don't be wavered. Don't be knocked off by the circumstances of life. And then he says, and let us consider how we might stir one another up towards love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. What the writer of Hebrews is saying, I mean, to the first century audience, but he may as well be saying to the 21st century audience, like, if you really believe that Jesus is who he says he is, like, even when doubts begin to creep into your mind, don't negate meeting together. It's a divine appointment week in and week out to gather the people of God, to sing the songs of praise to God, to sit under his teaching. Because as we've seen, something special takes place when the people of God gather together to praise God. This every week is a divine appointment. And so there's something special that takes place as the people worship. Here in Matthew chapter 28, the disciples have gathered there for worship. They're literally about to see Jesus high and lifted up. And then Jesus said to them in verse 18, he says, all, it says, Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Which may be the most obvious statement Jesus has ever said. He just raised himself from the dead. Clearly, there is nothing beyond the reach of his hand. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to him. But what he's saying to them is all of the prophecies that we spent the last month studying, the, the prophecies of who Jesus was, and all of the promises of God, have been realized in the resurrection. Because until this point, Jesus was telling them what was going to happen. Now he can look back with absolute confidence and say, this is what happened. Like everything that the Old Testament had said about who I would be and the reality of what that would mean for you was realized in the resurrection. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Everything that I have said has been proven true because I raised myself from the dead. I was trying to think like, what would that look like in our modern context? And I was realizing 
that for several years, the UCF football team have been claiming to be the best football team in the state of Florida, right? I mean, for many years, it's been our claim. We are the best team in the state of Florida, but we have not had the opportunity to prove it because none of the other teams in the state will play us. Granted, we do have the most recent national championship of any other college football team in the state of Florida, um, but we've not, no one else would play us. Until this, until just a few days ago, in UCF's bowl game, we got to play the University of Florida. And once and for all, with a resounding defeat of the Gators, proved that UCF is the best football team in the state of Florida. Granted, all the football teams in the state of Florida stink this year, but we stink the least, right? And so, and so we're the best. But I say that kind of in jo- joking, one, because I had to find some way to work a UCF win into the sermon. But really, like, what UCF has been saying for years, at least for the moment, was proved true. What, what, what God had been saying for generations was proved absolutely certain in the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. And that's what he says when he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Everything about our faith rises and falls on the resurrection. Like when you try to share your faith with people and they might have some objections, they start talking about things like creation and the flood and the dinosaurs and all of these things trying to poke holes in faith. And there are answers for all of those things as we've talked about before and directed you to the Hester family. They will answer those questions for you in, in detail. But everything really rises and falls on the resurrection. Was Jesus of Nazareth who he said he was? Does history point to Jesus of Nazareth as as the man who was crucified in the first century, buried in a tomb like every other person in human history, but unlike anyone else, raised from the dead? And maybe more than any other historical event in the history of the world, there's overwhelming evidence pointing to the reality that the resurrection took place. And so Jesus says, with that in mind, with that as the framework, all authority has been given to me. Now, I've said for most of my life, if someone can predict their death, die that death, and raise themselves from the dead, I'll do whatever they say. So what does Jesus ask us to do? He says to his disciples, he says, go therefore and make disciples. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so Jesus' final command to his disciples, the 11 guys left standing, the men who had spent three years following Jesus, learning to live like Jesus, and still didn't have faith all figured out, had this hesitation, to those guys, he said, the one thing I'm calling you to do as my disciples is to go and make disciples, which begs the question, what is a disciple? The Greek word for disciple is the word mathetes, which just simply means a learner, a student, or a follower. So people who are following Jesus, as we follow Jesus, after the resurrection, there were 11 total people. The guy spent three years teaching, preaching, healing, performing miracles. There were 11 guys left standing, and to those guys, to those followers who spent time leading, uh, following Jesus as he led, learning from him, modeling their life after him, he said, you are my disciples, therefore go and make more disciples. Go make more people that are going to learn about me, follow the way that I lead them through life, and imitate me. The disciples make disciples. I think Jesus sums up the, uh, the best definition of a disciple that I have found so far in the New Testament. I shared all the time is John chapter 10, verse 27. It's the parable or maybe the allegory of the good shepherd. And Jesus is trying to demonstrate to these guys and the crowd that's gathered around what it looks like to, to have a relationship with Jesus. And in their cultural context, Uh, He takes one of the most familiar pictures in the picture of a shepherd. And he says, like, I am a good shepherd. I'm the good shepherd. You would be like my sheep in this story. And my disciples, my sheep, they hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. 
In that one short verse, he sums up what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, that my sheep, the, those who are disciples of Jesus, they hear the voice of God. And we've said it's not the audible voice of God. If you hear the audible voice of God, maybe. But it's the promptings and the convictions and the leading of the Holy Spirit. It's that still, small voice that as you spend time praying and something comes to mind, and it's the Holy Spirit just giving you instruction and leading you, inviting you to follow him. They hear his voice. They are known by Jesus. And then they follow me. Disciple, a disciple is a follower of Jesus, trying by the power of the Holy Spirit to lead a life that brings uh, glory and honor to God. And here, at the end of his life, with clarity and conviction, Jesus says, disciples make disciples. One of the things I'm working on as I try to lead my family and lead our church is the idea that to be clear is to be kind because it cuts through confusion. Jesus is absolutely clear. The call of a, of a disciple is to make disciples. I remember when we decided to plant a church and the long backstory about prayer and fasting and, and deciding where God was going to put us to plant a church, all of these questions started coming to mind. And some of them were kind of silly questions, like, man, if we plant a church, like, what's the logo going to look like? What's the church going to be named? Like, can we think of one of those really trendy names where people aren't sure if they're going to a hotel or a church or, or a nightclub or something like that? And uh, obviously, I'm not very creative, and it's just Eastside Christian Church, because we're a Christian church on the east side of Orlando. Uh, and then, but other questions started going to mind, like, what time are we going to be? Like, where's the location going to be? What's the, the worship service going to be like? What's the, the teaching going to be like? What's the, 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 the tone, the culture of our church going to be? And all of those questions are important, but what we realize uh, is that the, the call of a church plant, the call of a church planter, and the call of a follower of Christ is just simply make disciples. Like if you build everything around making disciples, the rest of it falls in place. And I hear all the time, you think when you start a church, like you're not going to hear criticism. But you hear all the time, like, man, if we sang these songs, and some people want to sing more hymns or less hymns or this or that. And it's like, there is so much prayer and fasting that goes into this worship gathering every week because our goal is to make disciples. Adam, you should teach on this. You should teach on that. It's like, you may be right, but there is prayer and fasting that goes into this because the question we ask every week isn't like, what are we going to do to draw a crowd? Or what are we going to do to appease these people? It's what are we going to do so that when we gather together, we make much of God and we leave looking more like God than when we showed up. Obviously, we have a long way to go. We're praying and fasting to be sensitive to hear the still small voice of the Holy Spirit. But everything falls into place when we make the main thing, the main thing, to go, therefore, and make disciples. So what does that look like? Very quickly, everything else begins to fall into place. The first thing Jesus says, if you're going to make disciples, the command is to make disciples. Then he says, the way you do that is you go. You don't make disciples by sitting in and waiting for people to come to you. We have to go to our community. It takes an intentional effort because one thing I've realized is that no matter how nice the logo looks or what the right colors are, people don't just stumble into church anymore, do they? Especially if you bury that church in the back of a middle school on a, on a commercial property in East Orlando. People come to church because people have invited them. They have gone to their friends, their neighbors, their coworkers, and they've said, there is a church, I'm part of a church family, and uh, it's helping me become more like Jesus. I would love for you to come and worship with us, that we have to go. And evangelism and taking the message of Jesus and the way he's transformed our life and our story to the place that we live and, and play and work is so important. I came across this article from the Babylon Bee. Have you ever read the Babylon Bee? It's on Facebook and all kinds of silly things. And I don't really read it very often, but I thought this was really funny because they, it's a satire site, but they caught my attention because they said they're running a new evangelism report column. I was like, oh, this has got to be interesting. So here, this Babylon Bee evangelism report column, it says it's a series where we'll be profiling heroes of the faith. So I'm like really intrigued. Like, this is pretty cool. 
brave examples of Christian courage in reaching our communities for Christ. The first edition, it says, today we're taking a look at Susan from Toledo, Ohio. Susan employs an interesting evangelism tactic. She says, God bless you whenever a coworker sneezes. She does this in hopes that one day her coworkers will say something like, hey, Sue, I noticed that you say God in front of bless you. Well, other people who work with us just say bless you. Is there a reason for that? Care to take a few minutes to share your faith with me and perhaps invite me to your church? Sadly, it's tough work, Sue says. She's been with Cyberdyne, a company that takes online reservations for restaurants for over 25 years, and not a single coworker has asked her about her faith. It's rocky ground around here, she told us. I may say, I must say, God bless you several times a week. And no one has ever asked me to give a reason for the hope that is in me. You'd think they'd be chomping at the bit to ask me about my faith. I wish there was a way I could bring it up, but I don't want anyone to think I'm a weirdo. Susan uh, says she might ditch the tactic soon if it doesn't prove fruitful and replace it with wearing a tiny cross necklace around her neck. Let's all join in prayer for Susan. Like, I just thought that was pretty funny because, like, that's all of us at some point. Like, we have this silly idea, like, if I'm just a really nice person and I, and I do the Christmas shopping and I hold the door for the person behind me and they say thank you and I say my pleasure, they're going to make the connection to Chick-fil-A and I must be a Christian. And then they're asking how they can get baptized and give their life to Christ, right? And, like, God bless you or this or that. The, 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 the Great Commission says as disciples make disciples, we have to go. It's an intentional effort that we can't sit around waiting for people to come to us because we're following the example of a Savior who stepped down from heaven to earth so that we would find our way back to God in him. He didn't sit around waiting for us to wake up hoping, hoping that someday we might wander back to a relationship with God. He came to us. And if we're going to be disciples who make disciples, if, if Eastside is going to be a place where discipleship culture takes root, I mean, we have to go to the places and we have to be confident and courageous to say the things that God is doing in our lives so people will not just see the work of God, but they will know who is at work in our life, that it's his spirit. There's a quote I've read, I may have shared it with you before by Charles Spurgeon. He says this, he said, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish with our arms, if they perish, let it be with our arms wrapped around their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be in the teeth of our um, I wrote, exertions and let not one go unwarned or unprayed for. And I love that. I love that sense of urgency that he communicates, that if people are going to go to hell, let them have to step over the church's dead bodies to get there because we did anything short of sin to reach people who are far from God. The Great Commission says we have to go. We have to go uh, to our communities, our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers, and, and eventually to the ends of the earth to share the gospel. The next thing he says is go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. This is one of those other areas where we try not to be weird because the church has made baptism so complicated. But if you look at Romans chapter 6, it's literally just inviting people to unite their life with Jesus. Like the, for all of you who have been baptized into Christ, have clothed yourselves with Christ, been buried with him into his death, raised with him into his life. Like you want new life in Christ? Invite people to be baptized and then teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. This has been convicting for me because I think, you know, if, man, if I worked up the courage to invite you to church, I've gone to where you are and you got baptized like, the rest of it should just come naturally, right? It's like, well, I'm watching a two-year-old little girl try to learn things. And Carissa and I are all the time like, we find ourselves getting a little frustrated. And then we realize Brighton doesn't know she's two. And so it is as people make their way back to faith. 
We have to teach them, go to them, baptize them, invite them to unite their life with Christ, and then teach them what it means to walk with Jesus. Here's the thing. This is more than we could ever accomplish on our own, right? Like, the best of intentions fall far short. Without God's power and his presence of his Holy Spirit, we can't do any of this. Uh, at our house, we have in the backyard, our power line runs like right through our backyard. And, and right by the power line to our house is a palm tree that the people before us planted. And the palm tree has since grown up into the power lines. And as the, the wind blows, it like tickles the, the power lines or something like that. Relatively often, there's a lot of sparks and all of the power goes off for ourselves and four of my neighbors. They hate me, but I haven't cut the tree down yet because I'm trying to get Duke Energy to do it on their dime because I didn't plant the tree, but nonetheless. So like every month or so, we'll be in the middle of a work day and, and everything just shuts down. And Carissa gets mad and she tells me I should cut the tree down. She's absolutely right, but I haven't done it yet. And I was like, yeah, it's no problem. You know, who cares? Like the power goes out. Like, you know, I work out of a textbook that hasn't changed in 2,000 years. She's on a video call all the time. So I'm like, I can do this. And then like the other day it happened and I realized I, we were doing some laundry and all of a sudden the washer stopped. I was like, oh man, that stinks. I'm going to have to restart the washer. And then I like go to the kitchen and the dishwasher was running. I went to get something out, but it locks when it's running. So that doesn't work. I'm like, that's fine. I'm going to make lunch. I'm like, well, if I open the fridge, all the air is going to get out. It's amazing when you don't have power, you realize how many things desperately depend on that power. And so it is with the Holy Spirit. We get into this rhythm of thinking, man, we can do this on our own until we realize how much we desperately depend on the Holy Spirit and how little works without his presence in our life. Right after the Great Commission was given, Jesus gathers his disciples together and he gives them a few final instructions, which are in the book of Acts, right before his ascension. And he says to them in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he says, but you, my followers, my disciples, with this Great Commission in mind, will receive power. It's the word is literally explosive power. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. If we had more time, we would look through the rest of the book of Acts. But what you see is this church, these, 12, these 11 guys, some of their friends and family members, about 120 people. They have the commission of Jesus. They have confidence in Christ. They gather together in an upper room in Jerusalem and they wait. And during their season of waiting, they fast and they pray. and They ask God to do what only he can do. They've been given a, a mission, a mandate to transform the world for Jesus. 120 people at the start of the church. And they fast and they pray. They've been given more than they could ever accomplish on their own. And in short order, God pours out his Holy Spirit and the church experienced exponential growth. 3,000 people on the first, first day give their life to Jesus. It becomes 5,000 and it becomes 15,000. And in Acts chapter 4, it just becomes the multitudes. In four chapters, the church explodes onto the scene so they can't even count the number of people in attendance anymore. And we've kind of grown through 2,000 years of history into thinking like that can't happen anymore. But the, the God died for the people in East Orlando just like he died for people in Jerusalem in the first century. So here's what I want to invite you into with this Christmas theme in mind, this God with us in the beginning of Matthew, God with us to save us, in the end of Matthew, God with us to send us, is to join us in praying that 2022, believe it or not, would be a year of exponential growth for Eastside, not for our glory, but for his. We kicked off 2021 with a month of prayer and fasting. In the month of January, we want to start a rhythm at Eastside that every Wednesday in January, we're going to fast. We're going to talk a lot more about this next week. I just kind of want to prime the pump because fasting is uncomfortable, but we're going to strip away food and the comforts of, of, the, of the life one day a week for four weeks, 
to spend time with Jesus, asking the Holy Spirit to do what only he can do. Because God has called us with a vision to transform the spiritual landscape of the city of Orlando. As I look around this room, as I evaluate my own giftings or lack thereof, I realize, man, that is a call far beyond my ability. But it's not above his, beyond his. And so the same God who had 11 guys gathered together and said, and I will be with you always, says the same thing to us, God with us so that we can take the message to reach those who are far from him. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for your goodness and grace. Man, we're thankful for the privilege that we have to gather together to sing songs of praise. God, as Christmas has comes to an end, as we begin looking into the new year, we know that life begins to pick back up and all the joy and the celebration, the time off uh, is more in the rearview mirror than in the in front of us. And Father, I just pray that for our church family, for those who call Eastside home, that this would be a time to focus on you instead of let it fade from our memory. That as we move into January, as we begin thinking about our life in the new year, as we begin thinking about church life in the new year and all the things that we hope you will accomplish in our midst, that you would remind us that the God who was with us in Matthew chapter one is the God who's with us to send us in Matthew chapter 28 that the great commission given to the disciples on the hill on Galilee nearly 2,000 years ago is the same mission, the same mandate given to the followers of Jesus today, that we would be disciples who make disciples. And Father, I just simply ask for your blessing on east side over the course of the next year, that this would be a year of exponential growth so that you receive glory. God, our prayer has always been that you would allow us to be part of a church plant, that when people from the outside look at it, they would say, God did that through you? Like, yeah. God is so powerful. He could grow a church through a few people dedicated to going all in to lead others to exchange the common for the holy. Lord, give us courage to go. Go before us as we, we share the story of what you've done in our midst, that people would be convicted, that your Holy Spirit would work in them, that as we invite them in, they would be willing to get baptized, to unite their life with you, to taste salvation, to get, receive the power of your Holy Spirit. And then, Father, I pray for wisdom that we might teach well through Sunday morning worship gatherings, through men's and women's theology, through community groups and other opportunities this year, that you might shape your church into a group of disciples who are passionate and zealous about making disciples. Thank you for your grace. It is in your name we pray. Amen.